Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Ness, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley that this summer is stressing the importance of being a good steward on the trail, finding ways to avoid contributing to crowding, and staying safe on public lands. We'll talk about how just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department encourages everyone to come out and experience state parks during its centennial, the 100th anniversary of the state park system, especially through service projects listed online at stateparks.oregon.gov. It's a way to enjoy the parks you love while doing activities like cleaning up trails and restoring wetlands. All right, in today's episode, we're talking about one of the best places to catch fish in Oregon, a place where catching 50, 75, or even 100 fish in a single day is a realistic goal, and it is the patriotic duty of anglers here to keep and eat as many fish as possible. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. In today's episode, I am going to be joined by a biologist with the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, and you'll hear from him in just a second. And we're going to talk about fishing for smallmouth bass on the John Day River. Now, the reason I wanted to do a full episode is twofold. Now, one, catching smallmouth bass on the John Day is just a lot of fun, and the experience alone has definitely hooked my seven-year-old on fishing for life. But two, The story offers a pretty interesting case study on the upside and the downside of introducing non-native fish to waterways in the state. Okay, up next, we're going to talk about one of my favorite places to go fishing in Oregon, and that is the John Day River. This is a place where catching 100 smallmouth bass in a single day is a realistic goal, and no, that's not a joke. There are so many fish that in 2016, state officials removed the bag limit on smallmouth bass meaning that you can catch and keep as many as you want. It's also one of the best places to hook kids on fishing because chances are good you're going to get some action when you're out there and smallmouth, they're just a lot of fun to catch. To talk about how this unique fishing opportunity came to be and some of the big upsides and potential concerns, I'm joined today by Stefan Charette, the John Day District Fish Biologist for the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. Steph, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Zach. Okay, so to get started, can you paint a picture of smallmouth bass fishing on the John Day? So what's whether it's your experience or people you talk to, what's the best way to kind of describe it? Well, I would say that the most, the, the funnest way is really to take advantage of how long stretches we have in the John Day that are roadless and wilderness. And it's a true experience when you can go out for two, three days and really not see anybody other than fellow rafters and fisher folks and... Uh, you know, it's a true wilderness experience, which is the way I would recommend seeing it. But barring that, I mean, that takes a lot of planning and, and costs associated with shuttling and rafts and boat servicing. With Barring that, you can also do it by the bank. And there's plenty of bank access, you know, in the spray area and around Kimberly. Um, 
And yeah, so we kind of consider bass fishing to really get kicked off and started around May. You know, some years when if we unfortunately have a drought and warm spring, uh, April can be pretty good. There are some folks that target them in March as well. Um, it's a lot slower, um, but some of those folks fishing in that March, April timeframe are kind of focused more on the larger fish. And so they're not doing the volume of, you know, say 50 to, you know, 75 plus fish a day. They're just looking for the larger ones and they might only catch a few, but that makes them happy. Um, and then that May, June timeframe is generally really where I like to fish for them. And then as you start getting into mid-July, when we really start getting into the doldrums of the heat here in Eastern Oregon, it can be a little bit tougher. And then in August and September, it is, it is a little bit harder. And then, you know, fall, winter, very tough because it's, it's just cold and they aren't biting as much. Sure. So when it's going good and you were talking about kind of that June, May time period, is it kind of an every cast sort of a thing that you're getting a hit? Is it every other cast? Like it's, it kind of go into kind of how good it can get at its peak. Oh yeah. If you're using a relatively small, say you're using like a three inch jig with a relatively small hook and you're not overly concerned about, you know, uh, making it harder for those smaller fish to, to get hooked. Yeah. You can, you can rig up a, a child or someone that's new to fishing and they, they don't really care about the size and they're looking for the volume. You could catch a fish almost on every cast. Top water works great too. You know, those three inch, um, Zebco type lures that are float on the surface and you twitch them a little bit. I mean, it's not unheard of like, whoa, back in July, we had a weird spring this year where it was quite high and cold throughout most of the spring, which is pretty rare and we welcome the water, but it made for bass fishing conditions to be a little tougher and challenging. But I was out there in mid to late June and, you know, I wasn't fishing hard and it was just every few casts, you know, you'd have one hit of top water or, um, you know, I, was, I like to use also a, a Senko worm, like a four inch Senko style worm rigged Carolina style or wacky style. And I mean, yeah, you don't have to fish that hard to catch them. Then again, though, I have had people come to me and say, I thought you can catch bass anywhere in the John Day and we didn't catch hardly anything. So there is maybe a little bit of know-how in there about fishing. Gotcha. Okay. So the John Day is obviously a super long river, one of the longest undammed river systems in the United States. So what's the, what's the range generally? If you want to fish for smallmouth, uh, where are you going to target them primarily? So the primary areas would be the lower John Day earlier in the year because it tends to be warmer and drier down there. So basically below Service Creek, below Clarno, in the Cottonwood Canyon State Park region, you know, those areas where it's lower down in the John Day tend to pick up a little earlier just because it's warmer down there, drier, um, you know, not as many, not as much cool, wa cool water inputs from tributaries. And then, you know, that 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 area around Monument, Kimberly, some of that lower North Fork country between Monument and Kimberly and that country between Kimberly and Spray, that is also a very good area to fish. And it's a little bit closer to amenities. There's more bank fishing around there. Um, you know, you have campgrounds and stores. And so, you know, if you're looking for that kind of experience, you might want to wait until that mid-June time frame 
and you can always do a little bit more bank fishing or day trips between Monument and Kimberly and Kimberly and Spray. Okay. So give me a, a sense of how popular fishing for bass is on the river. Is it mostly locals? Is it mostly people from Oregon? Or is this something that draws in people from across the United States? Like, it, has it reached that level of being a, a tourism draw at this point? Oh, yeah. I think it has. I mean, I don't know if your listeners are too familiar with the John Day, but the BLM did implement a limited entry permit system on the John Day. And that was had been planned for well over eight or 10 years, but they finally did get it implemented two or three years ago. So if you're going to go on these longer multi-day trips, you have to plan in advance and try and snag one of those permits. I had some extreme difficulty snagging some for myself, but then <laughs> a little, a little bit, I kind of figured out the game and, um, on their second batch of releases, they release them in two batches. And on their second release, um, I was able to pick two two floats up. But it is getting more difficult to just decide on a whim you're going to go fish it on a weekend, unless you're bank fishing or day trips. Day trips and bank fishing, pretty easy. You can get a day trip permit through the BLM website fairly easily. Um, they have more than enough usually to satisfy the demand. And then, mm -hmm. you know, if you do snag a permit, you will see people from all over. You know, I talk to folks when I'm floating and fishing down there. And, you know, Central Oregon's a big popular area. Washington State, Idaho, uh, California. I see people from all over. And I think the word has been out for a little while now that the John Day is a pretty special place with a pretty good bass fishery as well. All right. So let's go back in time and talk a little bit about how that bass fishery came to be. You know, smallmouth are not native to the John Day River, meaning they didn't naturally occur there. So how did they get started in the river? Take me through that a bit. So in 1971, I believe it was in the early 70s, uh, ODFW uh, made the decision to release some smallmouth bass around the spray area in the mid John Day country. They took off, I think, I believe if I'm correct, they released somewhere around 60 to 100 bass. And within a very short time, I think they might have done another release later on the next year or something, all in the same general area around Kimberly Spray. And then within a few years, I've talked to folks that were here in the 70s. I was not. But in the 70s, um, you know, within five to 10 years, people were already just raving about how good the bass fishing was. So it was not a very difficult thing to establish bass in the John Day. What makes the, the John Day such a good fit for smallmouth hab habitat? Like what's, what's going on? Why did ODFW think it might be a good fit to begin with? And, and what is that habitat that they like so much? Well, bass generally do well in warmer waters. Um, if it was very, very cold, as we've seen in the John Day currently, um, there is a little bit of that thermal regime where they don't really like to go too far up into the headwater countries of the John Day because of the cold water. So the fact that the John Day does get pretty low in the summertime, um, there is uh, a lot of big, deep holes. There's a lot of slow-moving water. You know, some of that is anthropogenic related, like diking the river and channelizing it, deepening it in pools to prevent erosion and flooding. Um, some of that has been man-made, but also it's just a slow, lazy river. You know, it's never, never been a class four, class five river. So it's kind of like that slow moving, easy water. And the bass love that as, long, as well as the temperature profile is great for them. There's enough cover and hiding and there's enough food for them to do really well. 
Yeah, we'll talk about some of, you know, you mentioned, you know, the the warming climate a little bit being helping them out. I think there is an invasive crab or crayfish in there that they like to eat. So just take me through what's happened over the last 10 or 20 years that has kind of helped them become so prolific and just like been helpful for them, you know, thriving there. Well, yeah, the drought and the warming conditions and the the low flows that we get in the summertime, um, those kind of help, those conditions really do favor bass. And unfortunately, they do not favor our steelhead or Chinook, but bass do well in those. And there are so many bass in the river that we're seeing them um, begin to migrate, especially in some of the lower John Day country. They're migrating into some of our tributaries where our steelhead do rear because even, you know, those tributaries are now warming and becoming suitable habitat. And when you put too many fish in one section, they're going to start migrating, looking for other habitat because, you know, like anybody, you don't want to compete too hard for your food. And then on top of that, you know, we have pretty good macroinvertebrate populations. We have other fish species in the John Day, like red side shiners and dace and long nose suckers. So they have plenty of prey fish as well. And then on top of that, we used to have a pretty good, healthy population of uh, native signal crayfish. But about 12 or so years ago, um, we found out that somebody introduced inadvertently, they weren't doing it maliciously, but inadvertently introduced uh, rusty crayfish, which are an invasive to the John Day near the Kimberley area. And those have just spread way too quickly for my likes. And so, which is good because, I mean, I get, it's good for bass because it provides another food source. But it's almost to the point now where we're probably going to start seeing bass populations in certain areas where they're so dense, starting to maybe decline a little bit. Because um, when you get such a heavy, thick infestation of some of these areas like we've seen with these rusties, they'll actually overwhelm the males guarding the nests, guarding the reds, and kind of start destroying the reds and taking the eggs. I mean, that's not really happening. We don't see that. It's not, I wouldn't say that, you know, you need to sound the alarm bells that our smallmouth bass are going to disappear. By no means am I suggesting that. I'm just saying, mm -hmm. trying to paint a picture that the rusty crayfish invasion in the John Day is is alarming right now. Okay. Well, has there ever been a, a survey or estimate of how many smallmouth uh, we're talking about, in either in an area or in the whole river? We've done surveys, but it was mostly focused on uh, trying to paint a picture of quantifying how much they predate on our salmonids, our juvenile salmonids. Um, we, it's very hard and difficult to get at that number. Um, and we were doing some bass, you know, fishing for bass and creel surveys and trying to figure out how many bass were per mile. But we never really got to a good answer because you kind of do have to do a little bit more. It's more challenging and more involved. Um, we just know that there is a lot and we don't, really spend a lot of time figuring out just how many there are, but we know that there is a lot. Okay. Well, on that note, I mean, with, there were so many, at least in 2016, you eliminated the bag limit. Uh, I mean, you can catch and keep all you want. Uh, what led to that decision and what do you, what are you kind of hoping to accomplish with that? Well, we know the bass aren't perfect um, companions to our steelhead and, and Chinook smolts. I mean, they do predate on them. Um, we don't think that they're the number one reason why our steelhead are doing so poorly. Um, there's a lot of other factors involved there, but we do know that they predate on them. And, you know, kind of that trend where we're seeing them move into places where there are steelhead rearing in the summertime 
that was a huge concern for us. We did a variety of different management uh, schemes earlier on where, you know, there was a limit on how many fish you can keep. Then it turned into a slot limit. Like if they're above this, you know, this many inches, I think it was uh, 16 or 18, you had to let them go. If they were below, you know, say 10 inches, you had to let them go, but you could keep a certain amount in that 10 to 15 inch range. Um, but we didn't really see anything changing. You know, we, we kept seeing, you know, ubiquitous numbers of that eight to 10 inch range bass just everywhere. And so we thought, you know, they, they're obviously doing very well. They're maybe even a little bit overstocked. So it should probably be wise to focus on trying to remove that middle age class that are just way too many in the river and try and focus on getting them a little bit more diverse age class as well as remove enough so that maybe that straying into steelhead habitat doesn't happen. Gotcha. So it was just the idea was to encourage anglers to, to get a few more of them out of the river, uh, bring them home and eat them and then kind of thin out the population as much as they could. Exactly. Well, you mentioned steelhead struggling, uh, in particular. So how do, how does that manifest itself? Like how, how can ha an overpopulation of, of bass impact the, the steelhead population and, and what have you seen happen there? Well, so our steelhead, let's just focus on steelhead. So our steelhead generally will start entering the John Day river as adults in October. Um, they come into the Columbia much earlier, summer steelhead, you know, they're coming into the Columbia right now, they're moving over Bonneville Dam. And then by about early September, we kind of consider the run over Bonneville of the wild A steelheads as, you know, about done for our fish, for John Day fish. We, we know that they start going over Bonneville in July and August. And by September, you know, those are other fish or B run fish going up to Idaho. So the, the adults come in then. Then they start coming into the actual John Day River in October, November, December. Um, they'll spawn in April, May, June, and then their fry will, you know, come out in the summertime in July timeframe, June, July, depends on where you are. And that's all fine because they're usually spawning in areas in the tributaries. Steelhead are mostly a tributary spawner. So they're focused in on that colder water, the tributary habitat. Bass are rarely found in a lot of our tributaries in high numbers, like down in the mouths, yes, for sure, but not upper. Um, so you kind of think of that steelhead as like more of an upper tributary species. So that's a preferred anyway. And then what we're noticing though, is that as the water starts receding and getting warmer, and then like, so 30 mile is a tributary in the lower John Day. And we've studied that one quite a bit to try and get a picture of what's going on in the lower John Day. Cause the John Day is pretty unique in that it has five population distinct populations within the mpg the management population group and so you know our lower john day fish are the ones that are seem to be in a little bit more at risk with certain things like drought and and warming temperatures because like we're seeing in 30 mile those bass are moving up into 30 mile creek in the early part of the summer and then oftentimes they can get trapped in a pool where you know there's no water going out it's just such a drought that it's a nice deep pool and our smolts our steelhead smolts would be able to survive but you know you got six bass in there they're going to wipe them out and we've seen that so that's really kind of what we're concerned about more than anything because once those steelhead do if they can make it to september october without being you know, without drought conditions or high temperatures or being predated upon in November, December, January, 
February, March, throughout the spring, they're moving out of the system and headed out to the Columbia and into the ocean. So those are usually times where it's so cold or high and, and muddy and not very good visibility. So the bass are actually, um, they have, they're less favorable conditions for them to predate on our steelhead. Okay. So, you know, is, is it fair then like, can anglers help out by just catching and eating as many smallmouth bass as, as they can? Like, is, is that a good strategy long-term and it's fun at the same time? Yeah. I mean, we think it is. I mean, if you go down there and you can catch 50 bass and you kind of get a little bit perturbed that you only caught a few over 12 inches, well, why not keep a bunch of those eight to 10 inches and do the population a little bit of a favor and kind of thin them out a little bit. Um, you know, the whole goal is to have uh, a variety of age classes. I mean, we, we can't eliminate smallmouth bass as much as I might, you know, say that they do cause problems for our steelhead. Um, we're, we can't eliminate them. So we're, 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 we're here to live with them. And we know that steelhead have several problems on their plate in terms of their survival and thriving in the John Day. Are bass one of them? For sure. Are bass the number one? No, I'm not in my opinion. Um, but you know, that doesn't mean that we can't manage our bass populations in a way that would benefit steelhead as well as, you know, provide some food for the table and some fun and actually try and increase some of the size class a little bit in the bass. Like everyone loves to catch 50 bass a day, but, you know, after after just continually catching eight to 10 inches, sometimes it would be a little bit of fun to get, you know, a 16 inch on the line, which there are. There's 16, 20 inch bass for sure in the John Day. It just seems like there's less and less of them because of the numbers of those eight to 10 inches. Gotcha. Okay. So what is the, what is the spread generally? I mean, would you say the majority of them are that eight to 10 inches and then, you know, occasionally you catch the ones to get to 16, 20 inches. Is that sort of the, the spread overall? The, uh, the eight to 10 inches are the most ubiquitous size class for sure that you're going to catch. Um, you know, just as a quick off the cuff example, um, I might have spent a weekend here in late June with a buddy fishing in the lower John Day, and we probably boated about 100 fish without trying too hard over the weekend. And, you know, there was maybe 10 or so that were in that 12 to 14 inch range. Um, that's not saying that that's going to happen all the time, that you're going to catch that many smaller fish. Um, usually in that mid-June, early June time frame, you tend to catch a little bit nicer size, like the 16 to 20 inch bass kind of pop out a little bit more. We were fishing later in the season and it was um, not the greatest conditions, but just to give you an example, like, you know, you're talking like 85% are going to be eight to 10 inches. Oh, wow. Why are there so many just in that age class or that size class compared to the larger ones? Do they just not tend to get that large or what's going on there? Well, I think there's just so many of them that, you know, that is the size class that tends to do well um, when it's an overstocked situation. At least that's what it's telling me. You know, again, we haven't done any real in-depth studies uh, on how to manage our bass to get those bigger size classes. But I think most biologists that do manage fisheries would be able to tell you that, like, obviously there's a bit of an overcrowding situation where your fish are becoming a little bit stunted. Um, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's just too many fish and those eight to 10 inches seem to be doing well because that's where at the population level that we have now, that's their ability to grow to that size and maintain themselves for the food and conditions is appropriate. Getting them to that 16 to 20 inch range is becoming maybe a little bit more increasingly challenging 
But um, you talk to some guides and they chastise me for saying that there's not enough big bass. And I'm like, I, well, I agree with you. <laughs> I think I think there's maybe too many of those 8 to 10 inchers. Um, I as well would prefer to catch an 18-inch bass than 28-inchers. But, you know, to get to that point, we have to do something that unfortunately may involve taking out some of our smaller ace class fish. Okay. Well, in speaking about just how to catch them, uh, what, what methods work best for, for you? So, I mean, are you just talking, throwing out spinners, these worms, like what's, what's your go-to? My go-to would be, I really started getting into top water recently just because it's so much fun. And, you know, I know some people will, think that maybe top water won't net them as many bass over throughout the day but it's that's not true in the john day the john day uh i watched my buddy fish for half a day and he was catching just as many as i was and i was using a four inch senko rigged like carolina style and so those are the two main ways that i like to fish them because top water is just fun you know you see them hit the surface there's no doubt that that's a fish and you know <laughs> they fight and they jump and it's great and then just kind of slowly bouncing a Senko off the bottom, uh, you know, four inch Senko. I like to rig it wacky style or Carolina style um, with a little like one inch, what ain't one eighth inch um, split shot, just a little bit ahead of that. I mean, that's a killer as well. And then, you know, if you want to throw MEP spinners, if you got a kid that just wants to throw a MEP spinner, you'll catch fish. Um, you know, a little kid, like four year old, five year old kid throw out a bobber and a worm into a big deep hole they'll catch a fish so it's kind of up to how you want to do it but traditional smallmouth bass lures are the way to go and fishing it slow uh, whether you're on the surface or using a little jig or something like that is the way to go okay so there's kind of two obvious ways to do this you mentioned the there's the rafting and then the bank angling so if you're in a raft and, and you're headed downstream through those big canyons what are you sort of looking for for the best uh, bass fishing spots? Well, you're looking for the slower moving water and you're looking for pockets and deep holes um, along the bank generally. Um, so I'm just floating along and you go through a little riffle section. You ignore that, you know, you just keep boating. And then you get to like a nice meander bend and the river water is moving real slow and it's deep. You can't see the bottom. That's where you should spend a little bit of time casting and fishing. I forgot to mention it, but fly fishing is also very good. You know, throwing a woolly bugger or a streamer. Um, that's also very popular. I don't want to just focus on hard tackle, but that's kind of where you want to fish those meander bends, the deeper pools, slow moving stuff, throw it up against the bank, kind of slowly inch it into the pool. And I mean, I'm, I'm not saying it's a guarantee, but you will catch fish <laughs> if you try. All right. So if you're bank fishing, um, you know, you mentioned earlier on uh, a few of the best places to go and places to access the river. But if you're like hiking along the bank or something like that, what are you looking for the same kind of habitat? Yeah, same thing, like cliff faces where there's a big, deep pool where the river's eroded and scoured out a nice pool. And there's plenty of that between Monument and Kimberly, Kimberly and Spray. I mean, those are just areas that I mentioned because they're easy access by vehicle. And then spray down to Mule Shoe or Service Creek. Um, if you have like a mapping software on your phone that tells you public and private land, you should be able to easily find a nice deep pool that is on BLM land. And there's also a few places up and down the John Day um, near the Kimberly area where some ranches were nice enough to allow ODFW to put up signs in a kiosk that allow you to fish on uh, fishing only, but on their property. So you can always look on the highway 
if you're driving between Spray and, and Mount Vernon or Dayville, um, there's a few places along the river there near Kimberly that allow fishing for day use. Yeah, and I guess I was thinking of uh, Cottonwood Canyon is has quite a lot of, of river frontage at this point. It's a, yeah. a pretty re- reasonable drive from Portland. Yep. So, I mean, is it pretty easy to get down there, you know, get on the trail, hike around, and just look for, for good spots? Oh, yeah, that's another place that sometimes I forget about because – Usually in my mind, I'm like, well, once you leave, you know, Service Creek, it starts getting more into the rafting trips. But you're totally correct that Priest Hole, although that place is becoming more and more popular. So it's finding a spot around Priest Hole, Burnt Ranch is going to be a little bit more challenging because it's just becoming more popular from um, you know, Central Oregon folks have discovered the John Day in that area. Um, but that's one area where you can walk around, lots of deep pools, lots of bank access and BLM land, as well as Cottonwood Canyon State Park, obviously, is a huge trail system and plenty of spots to just walk up and down and bass fish. Well, it sounds like, you know, if, you, if you're if you paying attention, doing a little research, got the right gear, it's pretty easy to catch the fish. But since the goal is to remove them and get them out of the river, you got to have uh, some some recipes. So the one I typically have done is a pretty simple fish taco mm-hmm. dish because that's, that's pretty easy to do on the river. But do you have some favorite ways to, to cook them up or some suggestions for, for making smallmouth bass take, taste good? Oh, no, I'm with you. I think the best way, and I love it that way, is, is just uh, make little nuggets of uh, fillets and then dredge them and put them in your favorite seasoning and then fry them up and put them on fish tacos with a little slaw and uh, lime juice. And it's amazing that way i haven't tried ceviche with bass but that might be a good little maybe a little healthier you know not fried in oil (laughs) and then grilled i mean they're perfectly fine grilled on a on a plank and then put it on a salad or some greens uh, be a little healthy i'm not like a master chef but i would say that you know the bass are pretty i mean and this is america fried bass is the way to go (laughs) i'll just say that but you know, maybe I might try some ceviche one of these days with them. Yeah. And, you know, it. I was a little I was planning to, you know, have to clean a whole bunch of them and it was going to take forever. It's not that hard to, to clean them once you kind of get the, the routine down, but they're not they're a fairly bony fish, too. So, I mean, do you does that hold people back, you think, from harvesting as many as they might otherwise as just not wanting to, to oh. clean and debone them and stuff? For sure. I'm totally guilty of releasing more than I should um, because it's a bit of a pain in the butt to to fillet. Now, that being said, the secret is just go ahead, suck it up and invest in one of those uh, electric, you know, uh, knife fillet machines. I mean, it's totally Mm -hmm. cheating. You're going to look like you're probably from Alabama, but it's worth (laughs) it. It's worth it because you can just slap that fillet off the bone and it takes a few seconds and it's way easier than fighting with a knife even though i am a bit of a purist when it comes to filleting fish with a bass my recommendation is just keep a bunch and get one of those electric fillet knives all right well you know do you think that this is going to continue to be an increasingly popular thing because i more and more i do hear about people coming out to the john day uh, to fish for smallmouth bass. So, I mean, do you see it having an economic impact similar to the way coastal towns get a boost from salmon or steelhead fishing? Like, are we there yet or maybe not quite? Well, I mean, keep in mind that the John Day area itself is is very small town and, and quite rural. But I would I would I would say that, you know, little small outposts 
because it's hard to say that Kimberly is a town. You know, it's mostly an orchard and a little general store. But they are definitely benefiting from those fishing and rafting dollars coming into town. Little places like Service Creek, you know, they have a, a little outfitting uh, business where they rent rafts and they have places to stay and they do some, uh, I don't know if they do guided trips, but they do shuttles and there's, and there's a few shuttle companies operating. Um, and the town of Condon might see a little bit of a boom from Cottonwood Canyon state park and people staying there, um, getting groceries and supplies, you know, uh, these are all very, very small towns. So when you do have an influx of people, even if it's a group of like 15, just to go rafting, you know, they might stop and eat rest, eat at uh, a restaurant somewhere in town. And that's, you know, that could be quite a bit of a significant boost for the dollars. And the John Day area in general is, does see a, a boom during tourist season, which is the spring, summer, fall time. So I would say that absolutely it is helping the local economy as well as providing a really good recreational opportunity that people are enjoying in uh, seemingly higher numbers every year. I think it's I think it's a good deal overall. Yeah, it just strikes me. There's just as you look across Oregon, it's it seems like it's increasingly hard to catch fish, especially in the numbers that maybe we did in the old days. And you talk to the old timers where you could walk across the river on the backs of salmon and steelhead. You know that doesn't that ex, that doesn't seem to exist as much. So when you can go to a place where you're catching a lot of fish, the kids catch a lot of fish. It's fun and it gets them hooked on it. And it's just an experience you don't have in a ton of other places. Right. And I mean, in general, I would say that rafting and, you know, the outdoors has seen a pretty big boom um, in the last, you know, five to 10 years. I, it was not that big of a deal to go do John Day river trips where you didn't see that many people. And now we have, you know, you have to have a permitted system because there's just so many of them. And then, you know, COVID really kind of helped, I think, put, parts of Oregon on the map for some folks, you know, it there was nothing else to do. So they were like, well, I've always meant to go do the John Day. Let's go do it. And then, you know, so now we're kind of on the map. Mm -hmm. It's been, you know, some sections that are unpermitted that during COVID times, we just see a, a saw a huge influx of folks because it was the thing to go do. So, you know, we may see some ebbs and flows on that, you know, depending on the economy and people's free time. But I can say that as of right now, Yes, the John Day is probably as popular as it's ever been. All right. Well, anything else that uh, is important for people to know about uh, fishing for smallmouth bass on the John Day or, or anything like that you uh, you want to add? Well, I'll just keep it to more of like your stereotypical agency folks telling you to just be prepared. You know, if you are going out there for an, on a multi-day float, be prepared. You know, a lot of these launch sites require 10-ply tires that are heavy-duty because I can't tell you how many times I've seen um, rigs waiting to be picked up by the shuttle drivers with two flats. You know, that's not fun for anybody. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's rural, it's remote, it's rugged. Uh, there are some roads that are in terrible shape. Um, get your shuttle uh, figured out in advance. Bring the appropriate food, sunscreen protection. I would always recommend, you know, a device that can allow you to communicate in, in case something happens a Garmin or a Zolio or an InReach or something like that. Those are very, very handy. Um, I used one just a few months ago and it really saved my bacon. And the permits, you know, you need it. If you're going to float for the day or for a multi-day trip, make sure you get on that rec.gov site and get your permits. Carry your PFDs. OSP is out there patrolling and they're very nice folks, but, you know, you have to stay. You know, everyone knows the rules. Um, so have your PFDs for everybody on board. 
wear them, especially if you're not very comfortable swimming and your, um, your invasive species permit, which now is no longer, it's a waterway access permit. So you'll need mm -hmm. that as well. If your boat is anything over 10 feet. So just, you know, plan in advance, be prepared and just go out and have some fun. All right. Well, we've been talking to Stefan Charette, the John Day District Fish Biologist for the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. Thanks for much for being here. Thanks, Zach. Appreciate it. I'm Andy Geisler. I'm a forester at the American Forest Resource Council, and we're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Like you, I love the outdoors. On many days, the forest is my office. I work on the ground with public lands agencies on good forest management projects. Forest management helps achieve important conservation goals while providing sustainable timber. Science-based forestry helps improve wildlife habitat, outdoor recreation, clean air and water, and it's essential to providing renewable, climate-friendly wood products. Learn more about us at amforest.org. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. So the trails of the Oregon coast and the Tillamook Coast are popular for good reason. They offer everything from panoramic ocean views to stands of venerable old growth trees. With the need to get outside and experience these places stronger now than ever, you'll find their parking lots and trails are also often full. With a little pre-planning, you can avoid the crowds and discover some new favorite trails. Visit our trails and recreation map online at TillamookCoast.com. You can choose from a wide variety of lesser known trails. Not only will you be opening yourself up to new discovery, but you'll be helping to ease the wear and tear on many of our most crowded spots. So once again, check out TillamookCoast.com to get started with your less traveled adventure. All right, well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.